travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are the podcast that explores the history of the Bible. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I'm here with Helen Bond, and today we are talking about Bathsheba and the idea of harems in the ancient Near East and the Bible. I say harem. Helen, what do you say? I say harem. Harem. That sounds, sounds so exotic. much more legitimate. <laughs> Maybe it's a British US thing. I don't know. I know, or but yours sounds much right more intelligent. Maybe I'm just right and you're wrong. That's quite possible. Usually you are <laughs> right, except for all the extra U's that you guys put in words, like color and stuff like that, which is just too many letters. Normal. Um, Normal. All right. So I might say harem. I might say harem. Um, you guys can argue this out on the internet who was right. But <laughs> we will tell you. <laughs> the women's court. <laughs> yeah, the women's court. We will tell you who is absolutely right is our guest. Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. Lloyd was on before talking about Esther in one of our great episodes. Um, he is professor of ancient history at Cardiff University, and he is the author of, of a lot of books, but most recently of Persians, The Age of the Great Kings. And Helen, tell us about this uh, exhibition that Lloyd has done with the British Museum. What do you know about this? Yeah, it is uber cool. He's, um, he's a consultant on uh, uh, an exhibition called Luxury and Power, Persia to Greece. And it's got all these um, costumes, Persian hmm. costumes and things like that. And I, I know they're all meticulously researched. And I, I've even seen some pictures of them. And they look absolutely amazing. The colors and the gold wow. and, you know, just amazing. And it's on the 4th of May. And so if you're uh, for, for a couple of months afterwards till August, I think. So um, if you're anywhere near London, I would make a beeline to that. <laughs> All right. Again, that is at the British Museum, Luxury and Power, Persia to Greece. Our guest Lloyd Llewellyn Jones has helped put that that exhibition together. But uh, today we are talking about Bathsheba and harems. And of course, you guys remember the Bathsheba story when when King David spies her bathing on the roof and you know falls in lust with her, or whatever you want to call it. But the product of this uh, this union um, eventually is is Solomon, who becomes the heir to the throne. And as we'll see, he gets there not because of anything that Solomon did in particular, but because of what his mom Bathsheba did to to position him to be the first in line for the throne of the of Israel. So, without further ado, let's get to our conversation about harems and Bathsheba with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. Well, Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be back with you. I must have done something right last time. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> so last time we we talked about Esther and and her amazing story and, and sort of court dramas and stuff like that. And, and we're going to get to another one today with the story of, of David and, and Bathsheba and about harems in the ancient world. So... I, I I love word origin things, so I I just have to know harem. I, where does that word come from? Is that a Hebrew word? Is that an Arabic word? Like where does that come no, from? No, so, so so yes, it's, it's an Arabic word, and I use it merely as a convenience mm. because we really do not know how many of these ancient societies referred to these 
collections of royal women, hmm. a court of women. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, in Esther, for instance, just to, to go back to Esther, um, the, the term used there is the, is the court of women, okay. nothing more than that. Uh, there is a word in Hebrew, penima, which means something like the inside or the secluded, which sometimes seems to creep in when we're talking about royal women. I use harem simply because it is utilized by other historians and anthropologists of later societies. It comes from the Arabic meaning off limits, um, hmm. uh, out of, out of bounds, out of range. Okay. It has a kind of suggestion of the sacred about it, of course, if you want to have that as well. But what I would emphasize is, you know, when we're thinking about the harem, let's dismiss entirely all ideas of jewel in the belly button and dancing uh, girls and I know oh, Helen and, and Persian kittens and all of that. Okay, so, so as as compelling as those kind of Orientalist images are, you know, and they have sustained Hollywood and, and <laughs> French painters for decades now. Um, we've got to put that behind us. Um, these are um, w- very often working institutions. They are kind of almost like uh, little mini factories. We hmm. know, for instance, that they were um, harems were places where even the royal women were put to work making fine linen, hmm. royal linen, business linen. Also, um, these are places of dynastic politicking. And that's what I find really interesting about these. These are not um, extraneous uh, places for sexual desire, mm. but sex plays a very important role in it. Only in as far as these are dynastically loaded places. Yeah. Well, let's. All right. Well, let's let's get into that because yeah, I, and and we're, we should pronounce it harim. Is that the more accurate? Well, I think I think that's closer to the Arabic. But hey, who's splitting us? <laughs> harim. I might harem. say harim. <laughs> but like, okay. So so like you said, I think we come into this and sex like sex is like first and foremost we think these women are lying around you know waiting for the king to uh you know serve him and whatever that function but like you said this is so much more than than sex so just kind of list off you know some of the 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 general functions of of a harem or of this of this of these sort of collection of of royal women what how did they function in the ancient near east okay so i'm going to give an example here of uh for instance the Assyrian harem, Assyrian harem in the middle of the, I don't know, eighth century, for instance, for which we have quite a lot of evidence, actually. You know, so the harem is the uh, is an area of a palace, or of wherever, wherever the king happens to be. So that is to say, even when he's on campaign, his harem can travel with okay. him in covered wagons and so forth. All right, um, but more than anything. The word applies to a kind of hierarchical structure of women. At the top of the structure is the king's mother. Hmm. A king can have many, many wives and even more concubines, but he can only ever have one biological mother, of course. Hmm. And she is the linchpin between the king and his father, the previous king. So she has the kind of continuity, if you like, of blood and knowledge of the dynasty. Okay, so that's that's the chief role. And by and large, from the evidence we get from the ancient Near East, the Queen Mother is not challenged for that role. But almost inevitably, she will die at some point, and therefore the role becomes vacant. So who takes up this role? 
Well, here we have uh, a category that we'll, we'll call royal consorts, the wives. Kings can certainly have as many wives as they wish. There's no number, mm. it seems, uh, no limit to, to how many they can have. But it's quite customary, but not, not across the board, for a king to appoint a favoured wife or a chief wife. In Egypt, we know that um, she was privileged with a title, Hemet Nesu Weret, the great royal wife, hmm. and otherwise were Hemet Nesu, wives of the king. We don't always have that specification in other societies like in Assyria, and we can't tell whether this was kind of like, a, you know, it, it was a title that went with a certain, I don't know, um, uh, certain rights or certain um, properties, hmm. for instance, you know, a certain chamber, whatever, certain crown, we really don't know. And it's highly likely that even a woman who is appointed as a favoured wife or the chief wife actually is still in a perilous position because she can be supplanted according to the king's whims. Mm -hmm. So another woman, another wife, could easily supplant the chief wife if, for instance, she was more successful at producing children or if the, the family of a rival wife was making a power play in the court and we're being point, appointed to chief positions. Mm. The daughter, the sister of these men could rise um, accordingly too. So we have going on in these, these harems a kind of chess match all the time between women, but also between their families. Mm. And that's the important thing. You know, these women are not cut off from their families. They are part of a larger picture. Beneath the... Uh, the royal wives, the, co the consorts, we have maybe secondary wives and then also concubines. Hmm. And concubinage, of course, was uh, a common feature across the ancient Near East, right the way actually into the Greek world, into the Roman world as well. They, they, they were there. These women uh, could be procured in many different ways. They could be rounded up as uh, war chattels, so they could be prisoners of war. They could be gifted in exchange, so sent um, from foreign courts to a king. Uh, they could be gifted by families, individual families, um, important families, or even peasant families, or could simply uh, be acquired by the king at, 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 at will. Um, the story of Esther, as you know, is, is operates on this premise that the king sends out these kind of scouts across mm. the country to replenish the harem. And while there's a little bit of a fantasy going on there, nevertheless, what sits behind all of this, I think, is is actually a, a reality, which is kind of hard for us to 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 cope with. I think we, what we're dealing with, of course, is sex trafficking. You know, these mm. women are being found and, and brought in. Now, the life of a concubine, by and large, I think, was pretty dull. Very, very few of these concubines would ever have seen the king, let alone slept with him. Mm. This is where the Esther story gets a little bit fantastical, mm. you know. Jewish, Jewish girl does real good, you know. <laughs> but I think, by and large, most concubines would never have been in the presence of the king at all. However, occasionally they do rise to prominence. And we have evidence for this in Assyria, in Egypt, and in Persia. So quite a lot of it. That suddenly, for some reason... A king, a pharaoh, will take a fancy to a particular girl, a concubine of very low status, and she will give him a son who will suddenly become a favoured son for mm. some reason. And we don't know why. We don't know what sexual politics is working, you know, pillow talk and all of this kind of stuff. But suddenly this concubine will find herself 
the mother of the next heir. Mm. And when the king dies, she will find herself in the lofty position of being mother of the king. So even concubinage is a kind of ladder. There's a ladder to ascend there. Not many women are successful in that way, but certainly it's, it's not a dormant institution either. So think about it. You know, we've got all of these women and their family concerns operating in this, in this rather enclosed world, this closed sphere. Um, it's no wonder that stories of rivalries and murders and poisons um, are, are there. It would, I mean, uh, they, they, it would make for great reality TV. Why don't we? We should have a reality <laughs> TV show. Sounds terrible, well, isn't it? you know what? They, many, many years ago, when I was first working on Esther, I was watching um, in in Britain. We have this thing called Big Brother. Sure. I don't know if you had it elsewhere, <laughs> but it was this incredible thing where there were about six very, very um, forthright and quite powerful young women. And one really good-looking guy, and all the rest were kind of nerdy, you know. And these six women were really, really going for the power plays. And I, I, that's all I could think about when I was right. watching it. I was hooked on it, <laughs> thinking about this, this is anthropological study of how harems work. Yeah. So you were pretending... You were pretending that was research. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say you haven't done things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I, I want to bring you on to uh, King David in, in a second, though. But first of all, I yeah. think it's, it's maybe good to really underline the fact that polygamy was was allowed at the time absolutely. and in Jewish circles, absolutely. too. I know you had to have too, a lot of money, but... Um, but polygamy wasn't um, anything particularly strange, was it, in an no, Eastern it's, context? No, it's, it's, it's nothing abnormal. And in fact, certainly not amongst rulers. And in fact, a monogamous ruler would have appeared completely out of step with everyone else around him. And, you know, we can almost take a, a sort of, if you like, a Darwinian perspective on all of this. OK, so, um, you know, if you look at the um, animals in the wild, a lion will gather around him a pride of lionesses mm, and father as many cubs as these, on these lionesses as possible. And should another lion come and take over that pride by killing or driving out the male, that lion will take over the, the sexual reproductive rights of these lionesses and very often will kill the offspring of the previous mm. father and father his own. And Darwin saw all that going on. And, and in, uh, interestingly, some um, anthropologists from the 1950s and 60s started to pick up on this and think about human interactions and human family, um, family structures in a similar way and thought that polygamy actually is, in fact, our most natural form of mating and living habits as, as, as couples and I can, you know, as, as, as groups. And I can really understand that. I can see, I can see it. And it's no coincidence, you know, that when we look at the rise and fall of civilizations across the Near East, the more successful the imperial territory gathering is, the more women a ruler accumulates in his harem. Okay, so if we think about it, in Mari, in ancient Syria, um, at the beginning of his reign, King Zimri Lim, whom we know a lot about, has sixteen wives. At the end of his reign, when he's conquered a lot of territories, he has uh, over a hundred wives. Uh, you know, and we see something similar um, in Israel as well. So you know, uh, we go from you know the 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 um, the heights of Solomon's power. Should we want to believe in any of that, where he has three hundred wives, 
to Reroboam, his son, after the division of the kingdom, having, what, 13 wives, the fall yeah. is there as well, you know. That's so there's something, there's, there's, there's something about you. You can, you can put, yeah, you can measure this, you know, the rise and fall of civilizations through a Darwinian lens of acquiring more and more women because land, land and power equals wealth, wealth equals ability to reproduce hmm. on a on a huge scale it makes sense but so what about king david then how what what did he start yeah. with and what did he end with and 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 is his harem the same is is it all this sort of dynastic politicking as you say well it it does seem to be there you know okay so here's the caveat of course we're dealing with a, a story of david which is probably first of all transmitted in you know through oral uh, transmission then gets written down at some point. In my opinion, the, the point in which Samuel and Kings are codified is probably in the Persian period. Mm. So I'm always thinking there's an element of Persian royalty sort of being cast over all of the, all of the images mm. of the Israelite and the Judaite kings anyway. You know, it just take Solomon again. I mean, if Solomon has... Um, 300 wives and 800 concubines, as is claimed in Kings, then that's only to improve on what we know about the great king of Persia, who has 360 wives, for instance. <laughs> you know, Solomon does things on a bigger scale even than the king of Persia. So I think that's what's going on. So in a way, I think that the stories that we have of David's harem are filtered through a Persian lens. Not that that's necessarily problematic in terms of a reality um, because I think more than being a kind of literary motif I think there is reason to believe that stories of intrigues and rivalries and murders and all that kind of thing are real there's enough evidence in court societies across the world in different time periods to suggest that's the way that the pressures of court come out mm. uh, in, in, in behaviors of men and women but it's, it would be hard to say that this is a picture of an Israelite harem, a royal harem in the Bronze Age. That's, that's the difficult mm. thing to, to, to pin down. But if we were to look, for instance, at things like the Amarna letters, so the correspondence between the king of Babylon, the king of Egypt, and the king of Mitanni, what we see going on there is this international trade in, in women, um, as gifts, but also as royal wives as well. So the accumulation of wives, women, from political allies or rivals is certainly very much part of the dynastic system in the Bronze Age. And I think that goes very well for David. Now, with David, we're not thinking here, of course, in, in terms of empire per se, but we are thinking of a kind of tribal leader who is bringing, bringing together uh, alliances with other tribal leaders. And it's no coincidence, you know, that each of the wives that we know of David um, is linked to some kind of um, high-flying politician, mm. um, including, of course, and most importantly for David is Michal, who is um, the, the daughter of Saul and the, the sister of, of, uh, of Jonathan, of course. I mean, that's, that's the link that's most needed. Mm. But as David's power base shifts and changes, so he marries women brings them into the harem of people that really matter. So um, Bathsheba, um, we encounter her several times, of course, and the, and the, the information of Bathsheba is a little bit different in, in Kings than in Chronicles. Um, but in uh, in Samuel and Kings, rather, um, she is said to be, you know, the, the daughter of a, a noble of Jerusalem, for instance, you know, so that really helps David solidify his position within Jerusalem. 
We see the same thing going on in the Hellenistic period um, with Herod. Um, there's, there's aspects of that. Also with Philip II of Macedon, he's, he's conquering, he's going out, he's making then alliances through marriage with, with various daughters of, of, um, of warlords, essentially, as well. So I think that's what's going on there with David as, as the core of his historical harem, as it were. What emerges then, of course, are these incredible stories that the, the biblical narrator tells us about how it all goes terribly wrong for David. Mm. And part of that, of course, is, is the overarching picture of David turning away from God all the time, you know, and, and, and casting God aside and, and how that plays out within his household. So very famously, of course, we, we have the, the story of how David acquires Bathsheba to begin with. And it, it's, I always find it quite, you know, it's a disturbing story, um, I find. First of all, we have this kind of moonlight viewing of Bathsheba. Um, from the rooftop. David is on his palace and he looks over the rooftops and he sees Bathsheba bathing there. Very voyeuristic um, in that kind of way, you know, and I, I find that straight away a little discomforting. Um, and then, of course, Bathsheba is called to David and we don't really understand then what happens. The narrator doesn't give us the detail, but certainly she becomes pregnant by him. Now, whether this is rape hmm. or seduction or a willing assent on Bathsheba's part is, is completely mm. unknown. And that's given, of course, um, historians, novelists, filmmakers, carte blanche, really, to do what they want with this. Although I must admit, I've never yet encountered uh, an episode where Bathsheba is raped in this, but it's, it's possible. After all, I mean, she has no say in anything. She has no control over anything. And then, of course, we have this hideous cover-up of trying to pass off this child that Bathsheba is clearly going to bear onto her legitimate husband, Hittite, uh, the Hittite um, Uriah. Uh, and, of course, his horrific murder. You know, he's sent to the front line uh, by this rather cowardly, snivelly David who does this and then takes Bathsheba as, as, as his wife. It's all very murky and it's all very sordid to begin with. And Bathsheba doesn't really speak much in this. You know, David asks her name. She says, yes, I am she, mm. you know. But, the, the, but she's, she's a very passive character in all of this. Um, people have tried to empower her. There's an amazing 1951 movie, um, David and Bathsheba, with Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward, in which the scriptwriters, the American scriptwriters there, try to make Susan Hayward's Bathsheba this kind of rather feminist um, figure actually, you know, she's in control. She knows <laughs> David oh. is watching her. He produces him in that way, you know. Oh, but there's right. nothing. Okay. There's nothing of that in the biblical text. No. But of course, what we do have in the biblical text is that rare, rare moment when the narrator pauses and says, "She was beautiful to look upon," hmm. and that is such a rare thing in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, you know, we don't have a description, but just the fact that the the, the narrator says beauty. We are meant to share something of David's feeling, I think, for that as well. But it's it's a it's a difficult passage to deal with, and neither do we have then much about what happens after their marriage. Is it a marriage of consent? Does she go unwillingly into David's harem? He's acquired her that way, and of course, she has a child, and the child dies. We don't hear of what happens then to Bathsheba per se. Did she suffer until? Um, she begets Solomon, of course. 
And then Solomon seems to go as a, as a kind of, you know, favourite child then. Uh, presumably consent is meaningless in, in these circles, yeah. though. I mean, would, I, I, would yeah. anyone ever have consent? Would anyone ever say no? Yeah. And what, Absol- how many absolutely. people would yeah. die? Well, and, <laughs> and what would the consequences yeah, be? Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, for Bathsheba, I mean, you know, a woman, even a woman from a wealthy Ju- um, Jerusalemite family like her, would have no independence whatsoever. She could own no property. She had nothing. Um, she's married. She's only known in, in Chronicles, interestingly, and of course in Matthew's Gospel, as the wife of Uriah. Okay, so that patronymic is so important mm. to have that thing. So once that's gone, she, she is nothing. She can't return home to her father. She's been dis- besmirched. You know, she can't be put back on a marriage market again. So the only option for her is to enter into the harem willingly or not. So you're right, Helen. I mean, there, there is actually no choice mm. for her at all. But I just, I just wonder, you know. On what level was she engaging with this? I mean, was she traumatized by all of this? Was she um, was she keen to do this? Was she, what, you know, could she see that there was a good future for her? We simply don't know. The biblical narrator goes nowhere, nowhere in telling us any of this, of course. Although it is, it is a disturbing story, but I swear there is some comedy. Don't you think there's some comedy in the interaction between... David and Uriah, when he comes back and he's like, hey, Uriah, what's up? How's Joab? You know, yeah. why don't you go relax, wash your feet back at the yeah, house? Exactly. You and know, he refuses to sleep in his house. Then. Exactly. He says, no, 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 no. It's actually like, a pretty like, funny like, exchange. That is, I that is quite, yeah, that is. I mean, it's, it, it's quite farcical, isn't it? It is. You know, it is. It, there is a farce there. I can see Monty Python doing it. Well. It is. I yeah, mean, most, most definitely. There's comedy built most into definitely. that. Well, okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. so Bathsheba, yeah, she has this 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 murky beginning, which is all sorts of uh, you know questionable behavior. But we pick her up her story later, and now she's in this harem. She's she's operating politically, like you you talked about. This kind of set up for our listeners because I was surprised by this that it, but in the ancient Near East, it wasn't the idea that the firstborn son was automatically the heir to the throne. So yeah, how did that create this all. kind of free for all? No, absolutely. Mm. Yes, there was no real um, commitment to primogeniture at all, which meant that it was a free fall for any son um, to be able to gain a throne or for any mother to promote her son mm-hmm. towards the throne. And this is where dynastic politics and the politic in the Viharim really comes into its own. You know, We see uh, at the beginning of the first book of Kings, the moment where, where David is, uh, is, is dying, he's ill, He's an old guy. Um, we have this incredible scenario set up that he can't get warm. He's in bed. And so they um, they find him a young concubine, Abishag, and they put him in bed with with, with the old king just to keep him warm. And the, 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 um, the narrator says he knew her not, just to be absolutely oh, okay. clear of that. Okay, So she's a hot water bottle, essentially. Um, and it's while David is in this kind of, in his dotage, and he's not really functioning very well, that Bathsheba begins to panic about the future. What's going to happen next? Okay. Now Solomon is supposed to be David's favorite child, but far from being his firstborn, of course. Mm. His firstborn, and we'll come back to the firstborn story in a little while, was Absalom, but he's dead. The second of David's sons is Adonijah. And Adonijah at this point is is kicking up quite a storm. He's saying actually, you know, Look to me to be king mm. because I'm actually the, the now the living eldest of the sons of David. Um, Solomon is a nobody. His his mother is a nobody. Mm. You know, look to me. Uh, and this makes Bathsheba panic. 
Now, this is the interesting thing. Bathsheba doesn't manipulate what will happen next by herself. She actually goes to the religious authority. Mm. She goes to Nathan, the prophet. And that's important, that she needs the backing of high court officials mm. in order to do this. You know, it's, There's no good just going in on her own. And it's Nathan, actually, who, um, who recommends to Bathsheba what tactics she should follow. And so we find her in this really quite um, remarkably detailed scene in 1 Kings 1, going to David's bedchamber. He's lying there in bed. And uh, she goes through this elaborate ritual of, of kind of proskinesis. You know, she, she bows on the ground. She touches her forehead to the floor, you know, in full submission. And she says, making David live forever. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> and then says to him, you know, do you remember, my lord, that when Solomon was young, you promised me that you would make him king. So she's drawing on some po- some promise. And here we, we kind of almost get a flashback, as it were, hmm. to that kind of pillow talk that might have gone on with Bathsheba and David when the child was born, you know, after the death of the firstborn and so forth. So she's obviously drawing on something which is about their emotional attachment. And that's kind of important straight away. Sure. There's an emotional thing that's going on there. And David says, well, well, yes, yes, I, I, I do remember that. And, and really, yes, we, sh- we should do it. But then Bathsheba comes out with all of the evidence that's needed to get David to put Solomon on the throne. And all of this she's learned from uh, Nathan, mm. uh, who has told her that uh, Adonijah has taken, uh, taken himself away. He has gone into the countryside, he has raised an altar, he is having himself anointed as the king, mm. the ram's horn trumpets are being blown, and he is now actually establishing himself as the king of Israel, even before the death of his father. Mm. And this is when David finally acts and says, okay, this, this has to stop. Uh, and so he sends the army and the priesthood, together with Solomon, to this uh, location uh, and the anointing of uh, Adonijah is stopped and Solomon is anointed Mm. as crown prince, the heir, uh, instead. Now, it's interesting that David doesn't command Adonijah's death and that really is going to open himself for trouble in the future um, because, uh, you know, a rival brother uh, is always something to be feared. But Solomon comes to the throne basically because of the machinations of his mother and these uh, these courtiers, these these prominent courtiers as well. How much Solomon has to do with that, we are not told at all. He becomes the silent figure in this. Mm. And it's Bathsheba who does all of the action, which is really, really interesting. Do we have any idea how old Solomon might have been at this point? Is there any clues? There's not much of a clue okay. here at all. No, nothing at all. I mean, it could be anything, I suppose, from 20 through to 40, actually. Okay. I mean, we we really don't know what age do we want you know d- d- David to die at. We have no idea. Mm. I just want to draw your attention to though to um, to some Assyrian material um, that we have in in cuneiform records um, from Nineveh, and that's to do with the accession of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria. Esarhaddon was not the eldest son of his father uh, Sennacherib. Um, and Sennacherib had many, many other sons before Esarhaddon, but for some reason, as, Esahad, uh, as Sennacherib got older, he decided that his favour was actually on this younger of his sons, Esarhaddon, and he appoints him as the, the crown prince. Well, upon his father's death, uh, Sennacherib's death, 
um, Essa Harden is just bowled over by the amount of hostility brought down upon from his brothers who rebel against him and actually drive him into exile out of Assyria. Mm. And he has to fight a series of civil wars to, to get himself back uh, as king again. And that's the danger of having, of course, multiple wives and multiple <laughs> brothers all the time. And I think the David story shows us something very clear about that. Now, the, the Solomon story continues. Can I, can I just ask? Yeah, please. Um, it does... Do most people, most scholars, read the um, the Bathsheba David exchange quite as straightforwardly as you do? I mean, I I don't know what. Maybe I'm just sort of I don't know tuned to be more uh, I don't know disbelieving of people. But I was oh. always I always read it more scheming that you know this is an old bloke. He's so old, you know. He's got this woman there as his his hot water bottle, as you oh. say, and. She's reminding him of something he can't quite remember. Did I say that about Solomon? <laughs> okay, so I don't know. That's how I've always assumed. There's, there's, a, there's a real possibility, which I suppose in that case, it would make Bathsheba even more of a um, divisive character as well, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, She's lying, essentially, possibly, to get her son on the throne. But there is a rationale for it, you see. Whatever her motive is, whether it was, it's real or whether it's concocted, Solomon's life and her life will be in danger if Solomon doesn't ascend to the throne because that's the reality of it. So just like those lions who will kill off the cubs of other lions, this is what happens when brothers or rivals ascend to the throne. They very often will get rid of all rivals in the harem. And we find that in cross-cultural studies all over, in the Ottoman imperial harem in China. This is a, the common way in which things work. The, the previous generation is, is gotten rid of. Now, the fact is Solomon does come to the throne, and we find in, in uh, First Kings uh, an incident where um, Bathsheba is even seated at his right-hand side. Mm. So the place of honour. There we see her having ascended then from, let's say, rape victim to queen mother. Mm. Okay, she's she's there. She's she's achieved the greatest honour of all. And then a, the strangest incident happens. Adonijah, the rival brother, who has now been cast off from the kingship, comes to Bathsheba and asks, "Will you please do me a favour? Will you ask your son?" to give me the hand of Abishag the Shunammite, the concubine of David. Mm. And Bathsheba must look askance at this. I don't, I, I'll come back to it in a little while, but I just want to talk to you a little bit about what this means in terms of concubinage, okay? So he's asking for David's cast-off, if you like, okay, his ex-woman, right? To really understand the, the political machination here, we have to go back into Second Samuel, and an incident that occurs during the rebellion of Absalom against his father, David. When Absalom from Heron um, raised his own army, a small army, to, he, he um, entered into Jerusalem, drove David out of the capital. But before David could, uh, you know, he, David had to flee quite quickly. But he left behind him members of his court in Jerusalem, including 10 concubines, which is fascinating. And these 10 concubines are then captured by the incoming Absalom. And these 10 concubines become his personal property then. He doesn't know what to do with them. So he asks Joab, what should I do, his chief commander? And Joab says, take these women to the rooftop of your father's palace 
and there in the sight of Israel have sex with them. Hmm. And this is what he does. So he uses the bodies of his father's concubines as instruments for his own success in warfare. You know, So these women are the, the, the key, as it were, the dynastic symbols of his successful rebellion and his now his acquisition of the kingship. Interestingly, when the war turns against Absalom and he is cast out of Jerusalem, when David returns to his palace, these 10 women are anathema to him. They have now been tainted mm. by his son's ambition. And so the, the chronicler simply says they lived the rest of their lives as widows. Hmm. In other words, he has no sexual contact with them. They are useless. You know, they are, they are non-women. So that's what happens with, with these concubines. You know, as I say, they're, they're political entities, you know, claiming that a concubine or a wife of a king is tantamount to claiming the throne through the, through the reproductive possibilities. So, of course, having had sex or, you know, have been forced to have sex with Absalom, these women could all be pregnant by him. Well, that's just too politically dangerous for David to take them back as wives, because who then can ever tell who's going to be who would the father be? You know, so he just leaves them in this state of of non womanhood, really. Now that really impacts on what happens later on when Adonijah asks for Abishag the Shunammite as his wife. Bathsheba knows this straight away. She understands these political games. Of course, she does. And yet, according to the chronicler, she goes to Solomon and says. Will you give your half brother Abishag as as a wife? And of course, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Absalom, uh, Solomon realizes what Absalom is asking for. What he's asking for is another attempt at the throne, of course, through his father's concubine. And this is when he has um, uh, his half brother executed. Mm. So that that does the end of it. But it's an audacious thing to ask. It's a bizarre thing to ask as well, and certainly to ask of the queen mother. But maybe that is why he asks Bathsheba, is that she has actually, she's the woman with all the power. Mm. There is no other, really, that can equal that, you know, in terms of the, the female hierarchy, but also, of course, the closeness of mother and son uh, as well. So he, he, he really makes a leap, as though kind of naively Bathsheba's not going to understand mm. yeah. what he's asking about. Terrible. But I think all here, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think here, Helen, is where we see the really duplicitous Bathsheba, because she goes to Solomon and says, you know, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just carrying a message hmm. here from your brother, you know, and he'd like to marry this girl. And of course, he just lets, she just lets Solomon do the dirty work. You know, he, 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 he bursts to that point and has his brother executed. But it's a really fa fascinating bit of politicking that goes on there. Mm. And biblical characters are often quite devious, even, even yes, the good ones, it's, it's, aren't they? Even the good ones, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Really are. Really are. Well, and, and, and isn't it Oh, sorry. I was, I was going to say, how much of how much of that do you credit to, you know, back to these court dramas, like you said, if, they, if these were written in this Persian period, of course, it's much more entertaining if they're duplicitous yeah. and devious, like that's going to make for good, yeah. good storylines. Of course, it, make, it, it, it makes for good re reading. I think behind it is probably um, a true attempt when um, a brother of Solomon tried to take the throne through marriage. I think that's, you know, that's absolutely feasible mm. in a Near Eastern contract, uh, con uh, context. But what I do think we've got on here is a little bit of a literary motif as well. And I don't want to, I don't want to dampen that down entirely. I, you know, in the Persian period, um, Greek writers, for instance, were also writing court histories, court dramas um, set in the East as well. 
Um, Catesius of Knidos, who I've worked on quite extensively, was a Greek historian who lived in Persia. His Persica is full of these dramas of um, domestic rivalry between women, um, the, their, their husbands and their sons and so forth. Now, I don't want to dismiss any of that at all as being you know, unreal, but I do think also it, it, it was part of the vogue of the time mm. to write these court stories. And I really see in Catesius's work echoes of the Davidic um, sagas going on there as well, w- without a doubt. They, they are there. Esther is a product of the late right. Achaemenid period, I've argued as well. Another court story. We have Daniel. We have stories of Ahika in the Aramaic tradition and so forth. You know, again, all of these court tales. It seems to be really um, fascinating. And of course, there is a, a, another motif that goes on, and that is the Jewish character in these court tales as well. Very often the outsider looking in uh, mm. as well, which is re- really, really fascinating too. Mm-hmm. And Josephus tells these stories about Herod too, doesn't he? But I mean, it, he goes exactly. into great detail. We looked at Josephus actually a couple of um, sessions ago, but you know, yeah. so much detail on Herod and the court, the harem, yeah. the the women, different Absolutely. factions, and and there it, it is quite clear that it's quite political. There's there there yes, partisans absolutely. of different groups. That's right, and I think what Josephus brings out in the Herod stories really is is how. All the women of the family are engaged in this. You know, mm. we're talking about wives and concubines, but the, the character I love is, is the sister, <laughs> yeah. Salome, absolutely. I mean, incredible. I mean, she just has a finger in every political mm. pie, mm. doesn't she? You know, and, and it seems to me very realistic. I, I don't doubt any of that mm. because it goes on in all other uh, monarchic societies or, or in all actually tyrannical societies we could even call it that i remember once that um david lewis who's a great classicist once wrote that there is nothing in the works of Catesius uh, about these kind of political machinations and rivalries that one doesn't find he said in the in the kremlin of stalin mm. and i think he's absolutely <laughs> right you know this is how people in closed environments all intermarried all working too closely together this is how we operate mm. You know, so we work in university. Department. <laughs> we know how we work. Might be like that in Cardiff. <laughs> Not in Edinburgh. Oh, never in Edinburgh. Well, this, I mean, this has been amazing. We could keep talking about this for hours. I, I think what you've, what you've t- talked about here at the end is, is very important. Yes, there's obviously literary motifs, but the fact that they occur throughout the ancient world, throughout all these Near Eastern cultures is, you know, quote unquote, proof that, um, you know, this type of thing was happening. If not the exact details of these stories, the, you know, these type of of uh, political machinations and, you know, politicking within the harem obviously was happening for the reasons that you said, you know, the, the lives of, of these women and their sons were often at stake. So they're going to do what they what they can to put themselves in that seat of power right next to the king which is um like you alluded to that scene i think it's a a very powerful one where Bathsheba comes in to solomon who's just been anointed and he bows to her and he says bring in another throne my mom's gonna sit next exactly. to me and it's uh precisely precisely it's really cool. all of the power goes to the mother right, right? without mean, her he wouldn't be there yeah. so there wouldn't you go be there. absolutely he's a big deck to play yeah well yeah. all right well lloyd thank you so much i mean you you've written about so many different things we will have you back again but uh for now this has been another episode of biblical time machine we will see you guys next time